Hello and welcome to episode three of the Royal Meteorological Society's podcast. My name's Richard, I'm the digital guy here at the Society. Hello, I'm Liz Bentley and I'm Chief Executive here at the Royal Met Society. So we're looking back at our Weather Live event that we had at the weekend. Tell us a bit about Weather Live. Yeah, so a one-day event uh, took place on the Saturday, the 4th of November um, at Central Hall in London, Central Hall, Westminster. And traditionally in the past, the Society has laid on a two-day event called the Amateur Meteorologist Conference that run run about every three years. And we've decided uh, more recently to to change this to an annual event, but to reduce it to one day. So this was the first time we ran an event of this kind, but it was very much pitched at people who have an interest in weather and climate, uh, rather than maybe those that work in the profession or or study the science of meteorology. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the the day was split into three parts, and we had a morning talking about weather and photography, and then in the afternoon we looked back at the 1987 storm, so it was the 30-year anniversary this year of the 1987 storm, and we also had a session on weather and gardening. So some very broad themes there, but all have a very kind of coupled relationship with, with weather and climate. So this interview uh, relates to the first session that we had on Saturday, which was the photographic session, probably the one that I had the most interest in or the most involvement in, I guess, having been a photographer. Um, managed to catch up with Michael Pritchard from the Royal Photographic Society and uh, Terry Abraham, who is a landscape photographer from Cumbria. Yeah, a really interesting kind of mix of backgrounds from both of them. My- Michael himself was talking about the history of weather photography and, um, you know, takes us back to the kind of 1800s. So brings us up to kind of uh, modern day in photography. Whereas Terry is out there with the elements trying to capture those spectacular shots and obviously making films around, uh, um, you know, the weather, the scenery, the the climate itself around uh, the Lake District. Some fantastic and spectacular photography. And they'll talk about that, obviously, in this podcast. So very interesting, worth a listen. So the first session at today's Weather Live was the photographic session. We have uh, Michael Pritchard from the Royal Photographic Society, Chief Executive. And we have Terry Abraham, who is an outdoors broadcaster and photographer from Cumbria, specialising in landscape photography. Michael, you were talking first. Could you just go over what you were, what you were talking about this morning? Yeah, what I wanted to do during my presentation was, was just show people how weather was incorporated into photography in the period from 1839 up to sort of 1930 or so, and how also the the way photography developed technically opened up new opportunities for photographers to bring weather into their images and how it also at times it prevented people from from showing weather particularly things like clouds for example in their images so um, as a ex semi-professional photographer i guess i would always assume that landscape photography would be easier to photograph with the ancient photographic machinery purely because it doesn't move as much as say a, a portrait subject would but that's obviously not the case um, we're actually not far off with that. Um, I mean, initially, the, the first photographic process, the daguer- daguerreotype, was driven very much by the commercial opportunity, and that was very much around portraiture. But when, when you start to move through the, into the 1850s, for example, then landscape photography does become much more popular uh, because the process allows it to be done, and you can take the camera away from a darkroom or take your darkroom with you into the landscape, and, th- and that's where the opportunities then for landscape and bringing weather into those photographs really starts to come to the fore. And obviously travel photography really takes off in the early 1850s also, and, and uh, you know, showing tr- uh, landscape internationally and globally. So what were some of the, m- the major 
obstacles that the people had to overcome to photograph things like clouds and I mean, technically, the early photographic processes were, were not sensitive to the, the full colour spectrum. So when you photographed a scene, your sky would effectively just become white because it was overexposed in the, in the image. So photographers developed techniques to combine uh, two images into one, so they're exposed for the sky and exposed for the landscape, and then bring those two images into one picture. And the best exponent of that was Gustave Le Gray, a French photographer. But there are British examples. Henry Peach Robinson did that as well and and many others and some photographers said actually we, we just accept a clean sky and we're focused on the the landscape the subject whether mountains or fields whatever they were doing but as photography developed during the 19th century and it, the, the emulsions improved technically they became sensitive to the full color spectrum and people started to use them then uh, for landscape photography became much more folk, uh, competent shall we say and photographers were able to bring landscape and, and use it for artistic reasons. And pictorial photography, which was one of the sort of main uh, photographic movements from the what 1860s, 1870s onwards, um, the, the sky became very much part of the the photograph in, uh, and was then incorporated in and became you know could be very dramatic, it could be very subtle, but it was there in the picture. So I guess as cameras evolved and became way more portable and then colour film came in, the, the opportunities for photographers to capture landscape were, were greatly increased. And then I guess even moving into today where if you're out in the landscape, you have a phone on you that can take a picture, that's opened it up a lot. Yeah, I mean, colour photography really started to become commercially available from about 1907. Uh, again, the, the first emulsions that were being used for, to record colour were, were not sensitive to the full colour spectrum. So again, you get very distorted colours, you get skies that didn't represent what was really happening, what you could really see. But th those emulsions started to improve. But again, photographers in some ways started to develop and evolve those emulsions themselves to, to, so they got uh, the images that they wanted to do. But actually in many ways though um, black and white photography pictorial photography was really the dominant uh, genre for much of the early 20th, 20th century and in some ways that was uh, allowed photographers to um, record skies and weather in, in a way that was perhaps much more dramatic or in keeping with the style of photography that they wanted and then as we move through the 20th century up to digital, um, obviously things became much more open, emulsions were much more sensitive and recording the, the full spectrum so that you could do everything that we'd expect to do today pretty much by the middle of the, the 20th century. And obviously today now we've got our smartphones in, in our pockets with us at all times and actually there's some photographers producing some stunning work on smartphones and a lot of, there are a lot of competitions for iPhoneography which you know, show that those cam the camera is, is it just a tool to produce the best image. Um, okay, there are certain things you won't use your smartphone for, but for a lot of people and a lot, a lot of weather photography, the, the smartphone is a, is a perfect tool for that and it's always with you. Sure. So if we were to look um, from the very beginning of photography through to, um, through to now, what would the key photographers in those different periods be that people may want to go back and look at their work? I think if you look at a lot of the great photographers that were doing outdoor work, uh, Roger Fenton is a good example. I mean, he was both a uh, doing still life work, but he did a lot of outdoor work and, and was very aware of the composition of his photograph and saw the sky and clouds and as integral to his pictures. So he's always a good person to look at. Uh, if you move through the the century, then there are a number of very good amateur photographers. Joseph Gale is a good example. Horace Nichols uh, from the later nineteenth century and. 
as we move into the 20th century, then some of the real greats, Alfred Stieglitz, um, Clarence White, some of those proto-modernist photographers uh, were doing some really good work and, and using snow and light and shade and using weather to enhance some of the things they were trying to show through their, their photography uh, in, in very interesting ways. So I think those, those are always good names to look out for. And maybe uh, we can add to that list Terry, Abraham. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. So Terry, what's, you, you specialise in landscape photography now. You run a, a business doing landscape photography. Yeah, I'm a, a self-taught filmmaker and photographer. I've only been doing photography about three, four years now um, and five years with the filming. Um, but much, much like the people before me, I suppose, um, I like to get it all in camera. I'm not in one of these people that does a lot of post-processing. I see that as a another art form really mm -hmm. but um because i'm filming you know i don't have access to a hollywood studio with cgi and all that kind of thing i've got to get that shot right in camera when i'm capturing you know, particularly the cumbrian fells and the lake district at its very best so it's often i'll be filming for a few minutes or just a few seconds and i'll quickly get a photo as well but mm -hmm. um yeah um i've been called lots of things in my time not always complimentary but i have been uh, labeled uh, the lake district's visual lorette and Oh, nice. The region's Nan Shepherd, which is very flattering, but um, I don't don't see it that way. I'm just me going out there on the fells with my tent and snapping away. So you're talking about uh, you know filming or photographing for only a couple of seconds to get that one image. So I guess there is mm -hmm. a lot of waiting for the right moment, being there at the right time, looking at the forecasts, for example, and seeing what's happening. And yeah, I'm a bit of a weather geek, um, so I'm often looking at what the weather's going to be like around the Lake District and Cumbria in general. And it's very localised as well, but um, much like farmers, I suppose, they, they tend to be the best judges of what the weather's going to be like compared to professional forecasters. Uh, and that's because they're so familiar with the area and terrain, and I'm, I'm much the same now. I'll know when I look at general forecasts, I have a very good idea of what the weather's going to be like in a particular part of the Lake District, and even almost down to the hour, if you like. Um, so yeah, I'm always having an eye on the weather, but it's always about being out there in the right place at the right time. Um, a lot of photographers will tell you, um, you know, it's about the golden hour, especially in the summer at dawn and dusk, because mm -hmm. you get the long shadows, the contrast, the lovely hues that you get from the sun setting in the sky. But in the winter, it's a bit easier because the sun's already low in the sky, so it's a high, so you still get that contrast and shadows, but you could argue the snows add more drama and effect. But it is about being out there in the right place at the right time. Um, just getting out there. You, there's only so much planning you could do, and probably about 80% of the shots I capture on both video and, and photo are just pure luck, just by being out there. Okay. And what, what format um, cameras do you use for the photography side of things? Well, they often say the best camera is the one you got with you. Yeah. Um, sometimes on the smartphone, but reluctantly. So I do tend to take my DSLRs and whatnot with me all the time because uh, I just like snapping away even if I'm not out filming for anything in particular. Um, but um, I'm a big fan of full-frame cameras because just, you just capture more of the light and the dynamic range of the colour there. Um, and I'll do them in RAW and JPEG. Mm -hmm. So when I take a snap, I can ping it straight to my phone and put it on the social media and share people the lovely sights that I'm seeing in the area. But um, in terms of kit, um, I'll have a, a Canon EOS 6D with me, a Sony A7S, which is brilliant for low light photography, particularly at night, you know, with mm -hmm. the stars and things. Because um, a lot of my 
lot of my work, my documentaries, includes um, night time lapse. So the Sony A7S is fantastic for that. So I don't have to worry about, well, I say worry, I don't actually do it, but I know some people out there do, but they do photo stacking to really bring the stars and the Milky Way out. But mm -hmm. yeah, I find that a bit cheating. I wanna, I wanna see how it would look with my own eyes to a degree. Right. Um, and then, um, yeah, I'll have a few lenses with me, big telephoto, 600 millimeter job, a couple of wide angles. And that's about it, really, apart from microphones, if I'm filming anybody and getting sure. a natural sound of the area. Mm. So do you have a favorite season? I love it all, especially <laughs> up there, you know. Um, I think it was Bob Hope, wasn't it, that quoted about the British weather. You can get all seasons in one day, and you, you definitely can in Cumbria. Um, it really does change by the hour, through the day, by the day, by the week, by the month. Um, and that, to me, is very exciting. You know, it's a maritime climate after all. Um, that's, that's the climate we have here. You know, if we didn't have the Gulf Stream or even the jet stream affecting us the way it does, we'd be a lot colder than what we are. We're just a warm, wet, green island. Um, but we do get the snows as well. And that adds to the drama when you're out capturing landscapes um, and adds to the sense of fun, you know, going out in gnarly conditions and then you get that one shot on video for, say, 30 seconds or just that quick photo. And, um, well, I get a tremendous buzz out of it, you know. There's a real sense of achievement capturing something special. So my favourite time of year is probably winter. Um, I like the challenge of going out on the mountains in deep snows and dealing with the cold. Unfortunately, it means you have to carry more kit with you to keep warm and be safe. Mm. Um, a lot of people might find that off-putting, but um, I don't. I love it. I thrive on it particularly camping out on the mountains in the winter. I, I love the challenge. Mm. And of course, you know, in the winter with the snows, especially at dawn and dusk, you get to see sites that most walkers, people that are out on the mountains don't see because they're cooped up in bed or in a pub having a warm meal. And uh, they might look out the window and go, no, oh, it's a gray foggy day, but there I am on a summit looking down on radiation fog or a temperature inversion and just see a sea of cloud and the mountains poking out and that's, mm. Yeah, they're really special moments then. I love stuff like that. Yeah, I guess the um, the growth of online over the last 10, 15 years has, has meant that people see uh, more imagery in general anyway, but but far more spectacular imagery than they used to see because there was there's more opportunities to capture it mm. and more opportunities to, to spread it around. So mm. how, have you, how do you think um, people's appreciation of landscape photography has changed over the years? And that's a question to both of you, I guess. Um. I'll let Michael go first. <laughs> uh, I think I think the the availability of imagery hasn't necessarily helped uh, with the the quality that we see. And actually, it's people like Terry, mm. Joe Cornish, some of the other great landscape photographers that we have in this country that really set themselves apart through the quality of their work. So, I mean, I. I take a smartphone with me if I'm travelling, I take a, a camera with me, um, but the the work I produce is nowhere near the sort of work that Terry is doing because they're taking the time, as Terry says, they're, they're getting up or they're, they're camping overnight, they're getting up extremely early, they're out there before anyone else is and they're seeing things that I won't see as a, as a hiker or walker because I'm going out too late. So mm. I think 
the I think we there's an there's, there's a need to educate people when they're looking at images to help them appreciate what's actually gone into making and creating that image and it's you know through the work of people like Terry and his filming and his activities that start to show people what's what you can do but it takes years and years of experience and being part of that landscape and immersing yourself in it and understanding that landscape mm. yeah particularly the latter and I'd also add to that patience. Okay. A lot of people have this best of British attitude sometimes with the, with the gnarly weather we get here and they just go out and expecting to see what I may have put up online or anybody else. Um, but it's not as easy as that, you know. It's, it's, it's not unusual for me to be sat in the same spot on a fell mountainside, a fell side, for eight, nine hours, just waiting for that one special moment. And, and usually, sod's law, it's in those last few minutes I get the shot. But then it just makes it all the more worthwhile. I mean, as a simple analogy or an example, I suppose, is if you ask me to go sit down in, a, in the middle of London where we are now, in a, in a square, and just sit there doing nothing for eight hours, I'd tell you to go where the sun don't shine. But if you uh, asked me to do that on a fell side in the Lake District, mm -hmm. I'll happily do it. Those eight hours will fly out by just like eight minutes, really. Um, but yeah, it's very kind of Michael to put me in the same sort of category as Joe Cornish because um, he's, you know, he's a bit of a hero of mine, and I got to meet him for the first time recently when I was filming my uh, latest documentary about mountaineer Alan Hinks. And uh, I got a lovely email from Joe just the other week complimenting me on, me, on my work. But yes, it, it does involve a lot of hard work going out there, but um, you know, to a degree, anybody can do it. It's just They just need the patience. Mm. It's not always about the tools, but it's about you, know, you as a person, the mindset and what you're focused on. And, I suppose, in uh, well, reflecting back on myself, I, I may be a bit obsessed about it all sometimes, but it's just there in my blood, you know. C cut me, cut my veins open; it will bleed Fellside, Lake District. <laughs> Brilliant. So, if people are inspired to to find out more about, um, or, or to see some examples of great landscape photography, what's your what's your web address or your social media so that we can. Uh, well, sadly, I don't do much in the way of prints or anything like that online. Um, I tend to sort of take loads of pictures and then the magazines and stuff pick up on them. So okay. they often follow me on my social media. So it's on Twitter and Facebook and just Google Terry Abraham. You know, okay. You'll find me, let's put it that way. Okay. There's lots of stuff out there, unfortunately. All good, thankfully. <laughs> I think Terry's been very modest because I would also encourage anyone out there to, to take a look at Terry's various documentaries that are, are available on, I think, YouTube and Amazon because mm. they are inspirational and we've seen some of them this morning during the press or SM excerpts. And I think anyone that's interested in landscape and, and seeing something that you just won't see in an exhibition, go and check out Terry's documentaries as well. Great, okay. Uh, and as uh, a plug for the uh, for the Royal Meteorological Society's Weather Photographer of the Year, obviously I should probably probably do that. Um, you can find out more about that by going to our website, which is rmets.org. Um, Michael's Royal, Ph Royal Photographic Society website is rps.org, and uh, we'll put some links to Terry's work in the descriptions of this podcast and uh, up on our website. So, thank you very much, guys. Okay. Cheers. So yeah, like Terry says, I, I definitely recommend you check out some of his uh, videos on YouTube. They are absolutely stunning. People want to find out more about the Weather Photographer of the Year. Yeah, so we've been running this now for a couple of years. Um, 
Obviously, we had an exhibition up at Weather Live uh, for the 2017 shortlisted photographers and winners. Next year, we'll be launching in springtime. So certainly come to the Royal Met Society's website for more information. And generally, more information about weather and photography, you can find out. We've got a, a whole raft of information and different uh, things that you might find of interest. So the website is uh, www.rmets.org forward slash photography. Great. Thanks very much for listening. Bye for now.